Hello, everyone. We are back here for episode 17 of the Beyond the Whistle podcast. I'm Dylan Pescatore. I mean, you're joining me. Our guest today is Mike Schmidt, one of, if not the best third baseman of all time in LB history. And folks, I'm just going to run down these numbers to start us off. Hall of Famer, 12 All-Stars, 10 Golden Gloves, three MVPs, six Silver Sluggers. You're not getting that with many baseball players ever. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Dylan, <clears throat> pleasure to be with you. And I uh, always like to get back, talk a little baseball. I'm 70 years old, old now, so uh, being acknowledged by uh, the youth of today uh, is a good feeling. So sadly, we got to ask this question to everyone. How are you doing during these tough times? I know you're in Florida, which the restrictions are a little bit open, but still, it's kind of tough. How are you doing? Well, we, we're, we're doing fine. Um, obviously, I spent more time with my wife over the last three months uh, than, than I ever would have over a three-month period. Um, we uh, found a lot of really neat things. Uh, I'm trying to learn to play piano. Um, mm. One of those apps, uh, it's called Simply I believe. And, uh, um, you know, I get to a certain point where some uh, tougher chords and things like that are giving me a problem, but I can uh, I can play a few simple little little songs. We uh, we gotten into a hobby uh, um, with Legos. We were building Legos, believe it or not. They have some adult Lego kits that are uh, having a lot of fun with. Um, we uh, spent a lot of time in our backyard in our swimming pool. We both had a little surgery uh, about a month ago, so we're rehabbing uh, our surgeries. Um, we, we're taking the uh, stay at home pretty seriously. We don't, uh, we've been invited to a lot of now like I guess we're close to stage two, if not in uh, stage two um, of returning to normal. But, you know, we take it pretty seriously. We have not gone to a restaurant or anywhere where there's a gathering of people. Uh, we'll do some uh, pickup, uh, curbside pickup for meals. But for the most part, we're just uh, hunkered down in our home and, uh, you know, enjoying that. I, I got I to gotta tell you, I think we'd all like, you know, like to get out and get things back to normal. Uh, but... Uh, I have a little bit of a history of, uh, of uh, medical issues that uh, might make my system a little bit more vulnerable to uh, germs. So uh, we're taking it pretty seriously. I guess uh, um, we're going to go north to Rhode Island here in a couple of weeks. So uh, when we get up there, maybe we'll be able to go out more. Well, yeah, good to know you're taking the precaution, staying safe and, uh, you know, trying to find new ways to you know, spend your time. And uh, now going from the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, going from the present to the past, uh, you were born and raised in Ohio, your parents managed an aquatic club, and you were a lifeguard at the club. And, uh, you know, then you went on to uh, staying in Ohio to Ohio University. But before your playing days at Ohio University, tell us about your early athletic life. What got you into sports? Was it your parents? Was it just the environment in Ohio? And more specifically, what got you into your love for baseball? You know, back back in my day when I was when I was young, you can go back to the uh, when I was born in '49. So you're talking about uh, in, you know the mid '50s um, to my college years. Uh, you know, there was no cell phones. There was you know it wasn't an electronic like now um no internet uh, really no reason to stay indoors unless you were you know sleeping or eating um or or homework um you know 
So we spent most of our time outdoors, uh, whatever the season. That's the sport that we played. It was very competitive back then, uh, uh, but not, you know, not competitive in terms of, uh, of doing one sport year round, you know, specializing in the sport. It was more competitive in all three sports, football, baseball, basketball. Golf was not as big then, <clears throat> nor were any of the non uh, top sports like, you know, there was a wrestling team and a golf team, and I don't even think there was a soccer team back then. It was pretty much focused on the three major sports. And we all played all three of them. All my friends played all three of them. We, as soon as we got home from school, down to the playground, you know, pick up football, pick up basketball, softball, whatever. So uh, my life was, was all about sports as a young kid. And uh, very competitive. Uh, I believe the, you know, my father and his, his personality and uh, the fort I, I was fortunate to grow up in a uh, you know sort of like upper middle class uh, mm -hmm. a family where you know I was provided with whatever kind of whatever I needed in terms of uh, becoming a an athlete. Uh, uh, we had a park right down the street from our house with the diamond and the you know basketball hoops and all that. So that's where I spent most of my time. So early years of my life uh, were perfect for me to uh, uh, you know pursue something in athletics. Mm -hmm. So then Ian brings up that you went to Ohio University for four years from 67 to 71. Was that the first time you knew you had a shot to play professional baseball? Yeah, it didn't, it didn't happen until later in college, uh, actually my senior year. Uh, well, I did not get a scholarship to Ohio University, so I went to school there and I walked up uh, the baseball field. They had no idea who I was. They put a number on my back and asked me what position I played. And I said, you know, I really didn't have a position. So, well, how about shortstop? And, uh, hit me a few ground balls, and I got to swing the bat a little bit. And uh, so I made the freshman team at Ohio University. And uh, back then, they had a freshman team and a varsity team. They, you know, you didn't all play on one team. Um, schedules were totally different. You know, I think we only played about 10 or 11 games uh, as a freshman team back then. But the, uh, the shortstop on the varsity team signed a uh, professional contract uh, and it kind of opened up the position for me on the varsity. And they, you know, they stuck me there and allowed me to learn uh, on a job. And I got better that year. I got some great coaching from the, you know, the uh, Bob Wren, the uh, coach of baseball at Ohio University. Uh, uh, they were a northern, you know, northern school team in Ohio, but the, the program was well known nationally. Um, we played a nice schedule. I got confidence and became a minimum all minimum conference player and then an all-american and uh, you know uh, some scouts started to attend games and i got drafted by the Phillies. so you mentioned you played shortstop in college even though you ended up playing um uh, a different position in the majors but in that 1970 season not only were you an all-american but you also led uh, ohio to the college world series and what was that feeling like how did that team come together and just describe that 1970 season and why it was so successful for you and the that team. was a great a great great time in my life you know when i look back at my life um certain things really stand out uh, you know my triple a year in eugene obviously uh the uh, 1980s and i mean if i could name the top 10 uh years of my life obviously 1970 would would be in the top 10. We, uh, we had a great team that year. We finished fourth, uh, fourth in, uh, in the country, uh, country rankings, we finished fourth. And uh, that was pretty good uh, for our team. We, we won the regionals. Uh, 
we won the Super Regionals, and we ended up going to the World, College World Series. You know, that was a year, uh, you guys may not remember this, but uh, uh, and, and it's timely that we were talking, we were talking about this, where they had the riots at Penn State, and, uh, um, and uh, they, they closed school that year. They closed a lot of the schools, the uh, colleges in the country early, about a month early. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, had to go to a There you go. Oh, phone call. <laughs> I had to go to a little baseball camp called the Ted Klazuski Baseball School. And we lived in these little dorms that were actually set up for kids, you know, for, for teenagers. Uh, and we practiced on a little league field mm -hmm. until it was time to leave for Omaha for the College World Series. So, man, you talk about a lot of fun. Uh, you talk about, a, a, you know, a bunch of college uh, juniors and seniors living at this little Ted Kozuski baseball school, um, sleeping on these little cots and, and, <laughs> and practicing on this little league field. That was a, a, a ton of fun doing that. And, and by the way, we, we got uh, past, past grades in all our college classes that year. And I had a whole bunch of exams coming up. And so we we're all in a great mood because we were getting past uh, you know, pass fail, well, you know, mostly pass grades uh, in our exams. Um, we got credit for our school uh, subjects that we were, we were taking. So all in all, it was a great year. We went to uh, Omaha and we actually beat the number one team in the country the first night, we beat USC. Wow. Uh, went into the winner's bracket and then eventually got eliminated uh, with two losses, uh, um, one to Texas and one to Florida State. We won one more game. We were two and two in Omaha at the College World Series, but the 1970 year in my life is one I'll never forget. So the next year, 1971, in June, you get drafted to the MLB, and then you make your major league debut just 15 months later in September of 1972 after lighting up Double A, lighting up Triple A in Eugene. How was the minor league life for you, even though it was very short? Again, really cool. The uh, I was able to jump through the minor leagues in a year and a half. Uh, the Reading year, where they sent me right right after I was drafted, was not that great. Uh, but had some couple of guys in the minor league uh, administration that wanted to push me to the big leagues as fast as possible. So they sent me to AAA the next year. What a great year that was. Uh, Eugene, Oregon, uh, beautiful country out there, the Willamette Valley. Uh, nice little stadium, great support from the city. Um, for their minor league team, the Eugene Emeralds. We had a great team. I got to play second base that year, that year which I loved. And um, I uh, had a great year. I had 29 home runs and 90-some RBIs, and uh, I got called up to the big leagues at the end of that year. So as Dylan mentioned, you busted into the majors in 72. In 74, you made your first of 12 all-star appearances, including six straight from 79 to 84. But talk about that transition period to the big leagues. Who were some of your biggest mentors early in your time with the Phillies? And uh, who were some of the guys that you relied on to get you acclimated and to teach you the ropes of what it meant to be a professional? Early on, we had a player uh, by the name of Dave Cash, who uh, we traded, I believe, Ken Brett, a left-handed pitcher to the Pirates, and got Dave Cash back. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, became a really close friend. And... He had played for the Pirates in the World Series the previous year. Um, highly respected second baseman, leadoff hitter for the Pirates. 
And uh, when he came, we befriended each other, and he just, just bolstered my confidence like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he just had an attitude about the game that uh, was fun to be around, and we took a liking to each other. And uh, something about Dave Cash had made me a better player. And in 1974, following a pretty 1973, I had maybe the best year of my career, uh, if, you, if you look at the entire season. Uh, made the all-star team that year, and uh, I believe I hit uh, like 282 with 36 home runs, 116 RBI, something like that. I led the league in home runs that year. And of course, that year kind of propelled me to uh, my career. Uh, sure, I had some ups, ups and downs going from there, but uh, you know, I had three great uh, home run years after that. And then uh, I had really one, uh, what you might call a uh, suspect year in 1978. And uh, other than that, they were all pretty good. Mm, definitely. Going into those later 70 years when you're playing these powerhouse teams in the playoffs and you're losing to them, you're losing to the Reds, their big red machine, you're losing to the Dodgers. We all know their story. And then you finally break through in 1980. But take us through those years where you kept losing in playoffs. How did you keep your head up? How did you keep believing that you, you and your teammates could do it? <laughs> yeah, you're right. We. We struggled with the postseason. In uh, 76, 77, and 78, we made the postseason each of those years. We had great teams, but the big red machine beat us three straight in 1976. And then the Dodgers beat us in the uh, postseason in the NLCS the next two years in 77 and 78. <clears throat> so, it was it was funny uh, speaking for myself. I just did not uh, I couldn't accept that my resume had that those black marks on it where we just could not get through the National League Championship Series into the World Series. <clears throat> I don't know. We just didn't we didn't have what we needed, uh, and and that was that was brought to us in '79 when Pete Rose came to the Phillies. It's <laughs> a segue into another subject, but. Yeah, Pete Rose uh, added what we did not have, and that was a really great experienced leader in the postseason. And uh, him being there and him taking the spotlight and him being somebody that said, like, hey, guys, just follow me. Follow me. I know how to handle these situations. And we all kind of felt a release of pressure and that Pete was kind of accepting the pressure on his shoulders and just to be around him in the postseason was amazing. The difference, uh, we, we didn't feel the pressure for some reason that we did the previous three postseasons. And uh, in 1980, we just were the team that wouldn't die. We just kept winning. Uh, we won uh, four in a row from the Cubs and two out of three from the um, Expos to get into the postseason. And then we, we probably should have lost to the Astros in the postseason. We just kept plugging and plugging and plugging. We finally beat the Astros. <clears throat> we were down a couple runs in the ninth inning. If Nolan Ryan was on the mound, we ended up winning that game somehow. And then we got in the World Series, and the, the Royals might have been a better team, but we figured out a way to beat them in six games. So, so we added the World Championship to our resume. Yeah, I mean, definitely you had a great 10-year run to start your career, but really that was the year where everything came together. As you mentioned, Pete Rose came in in 79. You won your first NL MVP in 1980, so it's kind of like the perfect storm of everything coming together. 
So when did you know that year, maybe you guys had a chance to go all the way? What was the mentality? As you mentioned, this team was a team that never really quit. So when did you guys all decide to really buy into that season and, you know, make it yours in a sense to really try to go all the way? You know, you play them one game at a time. And, you know, the difference in, in 80 in the other three years is we got the big hit when we needed it. We made the big pitch when we needed it. Um, if I left, if I made an out in a pressure situation, the guy came behind me and got the big hit. So you didn't remember me uh, making it out. Uh, I did the same thing for other guys. Uh, it was just, it sounds trite, but it was, it was totally a team effort. Uh, you look at the entire roster. And it seems like everybody on in the dugout that wasn't a starting player contributed to a win. Um, got a big hit somewhere along the line, and that's what it takes to become a champion. Uh, it is a really a team effort. I mean, I can remember some of the biggest hits of my career were hits that other guys got. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Where I stuck out with a third, and uh, another guy, the next guy came up and hit a double. <clears throat> so that's that's how it happens. Uh, yeah, the right guys in the right places, and uh, you make the right pitching changes, and you say the right things in meetings. And again, if, if you want to look at one thing that we had that year that we didn't have, and it was Pete Rose. So I want to go back to that 1980 NLCS. Some have called it the best series of all time. Uh, we yep. know that it was still best of five in the NLCS back in 1980. And in four of the five games, you're going to extra innings against the Astros. And a pitcher that really doesn't get enough credit, the best pitcher of all time in my eyes is Nolan Ryan. Most strikeouts of all time by plenty. Not, no one's even going to beat that record or even come close. And you beat him in game five. You're down three runs. You faced him in game two where you did lose that game. But just go through, what was your even preparation to face such a great pitcher like Nolan Ryan? Lack of sleep. <laughs> I didn't sleep well the night before Nolan Ryan was pitching. Um, he was the toughest, you know, you get that question all the time, who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced? And for me, obviously, it, you know, for a lot of right-handed hitters, it was Nolan Ryan. Um, I, I, I did fair against Nolan. I mean, I, I think I had five home runs off of him uh, in my career, but I probably had 15 or 20 strikeouts. I mean, I had 50 or 60 at-bats against him. And, you know, none, none of them were ones that I, you know, said, well, I can't wait to get up there against Nolan Ryan. Uh, and you know what's funny in that 80 uh, playoff you were talking about, um, they took Nolan Ryan out of the game when I was coming to the plate with uh, a big run on third base. I think it was a tying run uh, in that game. And they took Nolan Ryan out. I was the last batter he was about to face. So the last batter he actually faced was the hitter before me. And they brought a guy by the name of Ken Force in who struck me out with the tying run on third base. I'll never forget that. And Del Unser came up as a pinch hitter behind me and hit a double down the, down the first base line. So before I got back to the dugout on the first pitch, Del had hit a double. It hits like that, you know, that's what creates world champions. If Del doesn't hit the double, we lose to the uh, Astros. And so, you know, I'm a, I have a world championship ring on my finger, and it's, you know, got a great deal to do with Del Unser. And that postseason, or that, that NLCS that year, 
in my estimation, I mean, they'll say that Houston played the Mets in an NLCS one time that, uh, you know, had some crazy extra inning games, but I don't see how it could have been better than the 80 NLCS. I mean, every, we had everything in that thing. We had bad calls by umpires. We had, uh, I mean, seriously bad calls by umpires. They didn't have a replay back then. And if they would have had replay, the whole thing would have changed. Uh, luckily, we won, so it didn't change in our favor, but just a little bit of everything, you know, uh, big hits, errors. Uh, uh, I, I remember the Astros having the tying run on third base at earlier in the game, midway in the game, about the seventh inning. I think we had a lead or the go-ahead run. I don't know what it is, a big run on third base. And the batter hit a sacrifice fly to left field. And I remember the umpire's name was Bob Engel. And he and I looked at each other and kind of winked. And we both saw that the runner who was tagging up at third base left too soon. So I get the ball from the pitcher. I go over to third base. I touch third base. And Bob Engel calls him out. When have you ever seen that in the National League Championship Series where an umpire would actually see a runner leave too soon on a sacrifice fly? He didn't have to leave too soon. He would have made it easily, but he tagged up and left too soon. What a, what a play in the National League Championship Series. I mean, you just don't see that. And so we, we had a little bit of everything in that, uh, in that series. But we came out on top, and uh, I didn't see any way the Royals were going to beat us after what we went through in Houston. Wow, that's definitely a crazy story. Um, and I think one of the crazier things about your career is not all the accolades that you racked up, which are obviously super impressive, but the fact that you spent your entire career with the Phillies, just one team. I mean, especially even today, especially today, I should say, we see guys, it's really hard to stay with one team their entire career. And you were born and raised in Ohio, so you were, I don't know how well you knew the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area before you got drafted. But why was it so important to you throughout your career to stay involved and to stay with the Phillies? And what, what about the culture and the fandom really just brought you in and made you part of their home? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, from 1976, when free agency came into Major League Baseball, we had the ability to, you know, to move around and you know, bargain with us for our services. The Phillies made me the highest paid player in baseball for, you know, about seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, through those, uh, those years from 76, you know, on, oh golly, I, I wasn't at the top, I was in the top three, um, more, almost in 85, 86. Uh, so that's one reason I didn't want to go anywhere. Every time I had a chance to go somewhere, they made me the highest paid player. <laughs> so, you know, we had, uh, our kids in a great school, you know, we did not want to uh, uh, upset uh, their lives by taking them out of the great school they were in in Philadelphia. Friends, kids had friends, you know, in the neighborhood, uh, did not want to upset that and, and, and start them off in, a, in an entirely new city. Uh, the players that uh, I became a, a champion with, uh, we, that, that was a period of, team for the, of, of time for the Phillies when we had maybe one of the great, great teams of all, you know, of all time or uh, at least, you know, from 76 through 86, or up through 81 or two or three, 
win a World Series in 83. So from 76 to 83, we were one of the teams to beat in the National League. You know, you had to beat the Phillies to, to win the World Championship. And, and then uh, in, in 84, they traded away Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Bill Morgan and all those guys. So we started rebuilding in 84. Mm-hmm. In 84 on through the time I retired, we weren't very, we were a second tier team. But again, I was, uh, you know, I, I, the, whole, the whole fan thing started to turn in my favor. I was greatly appreciated, you know, I cheered every time I came to home play. The booing had stopped. Uh, they had accepted me as, as one of the great players that played in front of them. And uh, it started a Hall of Fame talk started to happen. And um, again, I was living in, the, in an area where I just loved the home we had and, and the privacy that we had. And the off season, I did things uh, with my family around the city, which but I just could not see myself going to another team at, at a certain point in my career. I think that's the same with Brett and Bench and, um, you know, guys that did spend their entire careers. And we'll, we'll see that with players probably like Trout uh, going forward, and uh, uh, you know, there's a few players who spent there. Jimmy Rollins spent his entire career in Philadelphia. Ryan Howard did. Uh, Chase Utley did go on to the Dodgers. But um, you know, there are reasons. There are reasons you do, and then mostly they're they're due with family and and, and financial, you know, uh, compensation. Mm-hmm. So I notice. I mean, something that jumps out, other than of course the MVPs, the World Series championship. It's the Golden Gloves. Ten Golden Gloves to you at third base. That's unheard of in any age, really. Was How important was fielding to you? Maybe your coaches in, enacted something in your, in your mind that made it seem like fielding was the end-all, be-all. And another player that really stood out, it was kind of the end of his time, but Brooks Robinson somewhat played uh, during your time. Was that a player you looked up to, a man with 16 Golden Gloves, the most of any position player? Well, Brooks uh, had completed his career prior to me playing and he was kind of like the Michael Jordan of third baseman. Um, he stood out uh, heads and tails above everybody at the third baseman. I remember that uh, that World Series against the Reds. I, I think it was 70, 71-ish, somewhere in there when, the, when he made all those great plays. Uh, you guys may not have ever seen them because, you know, we didn't have the video. Um, you know, access that, that we have now. But Brooks Robinson made some plays that are still, they say, the greatest players that plays ever by a third baseman. 16 gold gloves, uh, uh, integral part of the Oregon golf championship runs. And he was kind of like, um, I'll call him idol, I guess. My, uh, he, he set the bar, so to speak, for third baseman. And sort of like a bar that would never be uh, attained by any other third baseman if you start looking at his gold gloves. You, know, you mentioned 16 gold gloves. I did my best to get there, but I couldn't get there. Um, yeah, he's still a good friend and uh, definitely a Hall of Famer. Um, he played on natural grass, all those gold gloves you're mentioning. I played a great deal of my third base on, on artificial surfaces, which are a lot easier to play defensively. And in general, defense was kind of fun for me. I, 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 it's not something that I went crazy working on. Um, it, it kind of came natural, natural to me. Uh, it was fun. Um, I, I spent a, probably 80, 85% of my time on my offense and 15% of my time on my defense. 
Um, and it does win games. You know, I think I won games with my glove. Um, and I had a great deal of fun. I, I can still to this day remember some plays as a third baseman. Um, again, like I say, we did not have the video access that they have nowadays. But I, I felt like I wanted to be a five-tool player. And one of the tools is good defense and a great arm. So obviously, after your legendary career in 1989, you were able to still get involved with the Phillies. In 2002, you started a coaching career a little bit. You were their hitting coach during each of their spring trainings. Starting in 2002, you were the manager of their single-A team, the Clearwater Threshers, uh, yep. for a season. And then you also spent some time in 2009 as the third base coach for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. What decided to get you back into a role in baseball and coaching? And what were some of your um, most fun memories and maybe even some of your biggest challenges coaching? And what got you back into that role in baseball? You guys have really done your research for this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, you're testing my brain here. Um, I did. In, in 2000, Larry Boyle became the manager. And the Phillies had Pat Burrell and Scott Rowland. Um, and, uh, Boa called me and asked me if I'd like to come to spring training and work with those two guys. Boa knew that I had made some great strides in, in cutting my strikeout down as a hitter. And both of those guys were big strikeout guys, Burl and Roland. And he just wanted me to hang with those guys throughout the spring. And that kind of uh, opened the door for me to come back to the Phillies and come back into baseball and coaching. He was on a limited role. Um, spring training, but then in the uh, 2004 season, I talked to my wife, and uh, I just had this itching to get back into coaching. I actually had my sights set on uh, the major league job, mm -hmm. and uh, so I managed in Triple A, um, or excuse me, in Single A out of Clearwater um, in the Florida State League in 2004. What a challenge that was! Uh, you know, it was like 100 degrees every day. And uh, a lot of our games were rained out. We had to take batting practice in shorts and T-shirts. It was so mm -hmm. hot. And uh, we weren't a very good team. The Phillies uh, was not that strong back then. And, uh, you know, we got our butts beat pretty bad that year. And we kind of got saved by a hurricane that came through the middle of Florida <laughs> that uh, terminated the last month of the season that year. Mm -hmm. So. They shut that down, and uh, Charlie Manuel was named manager after Bull was uh, terminated. And uh, the rest is history with Charlie Manuel. He uh, um, became the greatest, winningest manager of all time for the Phillies uh, for that point on. And he's kind of legendary in the city now. Uh, and uh, my aspirations to manage in the major league sort of ended that year. Uh, Charlie and I have become great friends, and I have uh, spent a great deal of time well, I shouldn't say I've done it for the last three or four years, but uh, I did go to the Philly spring training for about 10 years in a row as a uh, guest coach. That was a lot of fun, enjoyed. Um, now I'm involved with the Phillies broadcasting and uh, do some ambassadorial marketing work. Uh, whenever the Phillies are at home on the weekends, I, uh, I spend a great deal of time there. The Phillies are an all-class organization. You win the first World Series in their really history, and then they went again in 2008. How was it just to break that streak? The city is going crazy. It's their first World Series championship. What was that reaction? What was the parade like? 
like something I never dreamed it could be. I mean, we were on these floats uh, going down Broad Street from uh, the uh, Art Museum through Broad Street and all the way down to JFK Stadium, old JFK Stadium. And I mean, they were like 10 deep on each side of Broad Street. Uh, you know, we were waving at them and uh, my wife was on the float with us and smiles on everybody, obviously. Uh, just a just a love between the fans and the and and, uh, and the players, knowing of the hard times we had had prior to that, the tough times at Veterans Stadium when uh, you know we we when we hear boos from coming from the stands and there was not an, even an inkling of that that day. We finally got down to uh, JFK Stadium. We pulled in there and there must have been 150,000 people in JFK Stadium and they had a big stage built in the middle and we parked behind the stage and went up on the stage and we all got to say a little, uh, you know, a little short uh, uh, speech. Everybody kind of got to say a little something and uh, and everybody got a, a, obviously a crazy loud cheer. You had to hold your ears. It was so loud, but yeah, the, the coming together of uh, baseball fans in the city, we gave them what they finally, what they finally were looking for and it happened again just like that if not if not in mass uh in 2008 uh, with the next generation of philly philly players and uh that's what the town wants you know and uh it's like you see everybody in the city seems like they have a phillies hat on or a phillies jersey or something related to their baseball team. and uh it's a very warm feeling to be part of that Wow. So our last question today is going to be all about uh, your retirement in uh, 1989. So in the middle of the year, you experienced some in injuries with your rotator cuff, and you decide that you're going to announce to retire mid-year in May. Yet the fans, which love you, of course, still vote you to the All-Star game, and you get a standing ovation. How was that experience like to go back and just experience an entire league-wide love? That is uh, one of my top tenors as well. Um, Amazing that you pulled that one out. Yeah, in, in terms of respect for your career, um, I don't know that that's happened very often, if ever, other, other than other than that. I mean, I had been retired for like two and a half months and the all-star voting hadn't even happened to that point. I uh, And the votes just kept coming in and I ended up being voted as a starting third baseman after having retired. So, you know, that was just an amazing feeling of respect to be introduced as a starting third baseman uh, after having retired at, I believe it was uh, at Angel Stadium in the California Angel Stadium at Anaheim. And I'll never forget that. Uh, they, they, they actually introduced the lineup first. And I believe Howard Johnson took my place that year in the starting lineup. And after all the lineups were introduced, they made a special introduction. And I came out of the dugout and ran out there, shook, shook everybody's hand. Yeah, that was uh, a great, you know, a culmination to that whole process of retiring. And that was where fans across the country showed their appreciation for my career. Well, that's it. Thank you so much, Mr. Smith, for joining us. It's been a great job uh, for all of us and a great time just to listen to you go through your entire career. 
It's been episode 17 of the On the Whistle podcast. Mike Schmidt, thank you for joining us. I've been yeah, Dylan Pescator, and Ian Nicholas was my, was my uh, yeah, Dylan, and you guys take care, stay safe, and it was, it was fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Have a great day.